We'll read uh, verse 12. John 2, verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? <coughs> Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou read it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name, and they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any would testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And especially um, verse, the end of verse 16 into 17, make not my father's house and house of merchandise, and his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The zeal for thine house has eaten me up. And our desire is, as we look at God's word now, that he would enable us to understand it by the light of his spirit. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Zeal for thine house hath eaten me up. Now, this is the second half of um, a message, a sermon uh, on this event. And we saw last time Christ begin to cleanse the temple. There are three sections of this message. The condition of the temple, the cleansing of the temple, and the fulfillment of the temple. And we saw the condition of the temple last time and began to look at Christ cleansing it and how he did that by driving them out as we just read. He saw some ropes uh, that were used for the animals and other goods that were in this marketplace that they'd set up in the temple and he took them as a whip and moved the animals out, turned over the tables and drove uh, the people uh, out. Um, we saw these problems in the temple essentially that they had set up a court 
of the temple as a currency exchange and marketplace uh, for animals doing trade. As Christ says here, a house of merchandise. And we saw him drive them out and in this sign. And I asked the question, why did he do that? And the answer was zeal. And we began at least an overview of what the foundation of that zeal was and why he reacts this way. And you'll remember, hopefully, that it was the holiness of God. And I spoke to you about that for a few minutes. I want to continue now with the reasons that Christ responded with this zeal and what is essentially a holy anger at what was going on and give you the main reasons that we know from the word that he was so angry and why he did what he did in this cleansing of the temple. That's the second point and we'll finish with him as the fulfillment of the temple. So let's uh, open out more this cleansing of the temple and the reasons for it. Why was Christ so angry? And make no mistake, he is angry. He doesn't lose control. We know that because while it may look a certain way to us, he threw over tables, he poured out money boxes and bags, and he lashed with a whip, not hurting anyone. But when he came to the doves, that were probably kept in wooden cages on on tables or hanging. And he went to the ones that sold them. He didn't push those over. They had animals uh, in it. And Christ would never sin in that way. But he just told them, take these doves away. He didn't push anything over that uh, would hurt the animals and so on. So um, this is the mistake everyone makes about God, including myself, and makes about Christ that they either misunderstand his anger and make it something that it's not, or they delete his anger and he's never angry. But of course, Christ isn't like the passive <coughs> moderate who is never angry about anything because they have no zeal. And Christ isn't like the person that loses control and they think that their whole anger is righteous but ends up doing things that aren't righteous. Christ, of course, lands exactly on the hot spot of where God's anger actually is on the perfect spot of righteousness, which is that it's not passive and moderate, but that there is a zeal, even in his human emotions, there is a zeal that fills him, but it's never unrighteous. So this whole series, remember, is about seeing the glory of God, the person of Christ and his work through the signs he performs. Each one reveals the glory of God, and you must look at Christ here as an unveiling of God expressing himself through his son. And that's where we see, as we saw in Cana, the glory of the joy and redemption that's provided in that wine and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Here John shows us that God has anger, that Christ has anger, that Christ has zeal, that holiness is important. Reverence in his sanctuary and church is important so that no one can honestly read their New Testament and deny that. People do, and they just ignore things like this. But let you and I look God in the face and know him as he is. We beheld his glory, John said. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. 
this is a glory. The glory heats up and it's channeled through Christ's human nature. But we see him as prophet, king, messiah, son of God, going into his house, not their house, his house. And as much as we would defend all we do in that house, all formulations of Christianity, we defend what we do in his house. But all that really matters at the end of the day is that when Christ comes to his house, what does he think of what's going on in there? Why was he so angry? He was angry for a few reasons, and let me give them to you. The first was covetousness. And I touched upon, I established for you last time, uh, how that was manifested, what they were doing that showed that covetousness, uh, that selling of merchandise, that increase of interest on the temple coins and money, the increase on the price of sacrifices that they would put up at the time of feasts like Passover, was people were buying these things to worship God with them. And that the high priest family, who should have been a holy, gracious, humble, contrite, faithful family to Jehovah, they weren't even converted. And they used the temple for their own luxurious lifestyle, their homes, their clothes, the furtherance of their own children. And they reigned over the people, raking in money all day long from God's people and the poor as they worship. Now Christ is God and God tells us in his word what he thinks of this. Christ tells us what he thinks of this. God tells us that he hates covetousness. We may think it's a, a defendable sin that if you keep the Sabbath and don't lie and don't obviously steal from people, you don't swear, um, you're not outwardly sexually immoral and you have a what would be called a moral life, that it's okay to just d desire things all the time and, and to want to further yourself and, and to, to heap up treasures in your bank account or in your home or the way it looks or the vehicles you own or the things you invest in or your business. Now there's a right way for profit to be made. That's not the point right now. That's for another Bible study or Sunday school class that we must work well and that should have some increase in it. But that's not what this is. This is the high priest family. This is the church of God. This is the temple. It's not a place to be running a business and making profit and filling your own bank account, which is exactly what they were doing. He hates covetousness. He says through Isaiah, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. God hates robbery. There's a widow going with her coin to the temple and the Sanhedrin or the presbytery <coughs> must be very careful about the way they view that and what they do with it and how they treat her. Because if someone takes advantage of a widow or an orphan or the poor or the family of God, like Judas ended up doing, God, unless he repents, God will show him no mercy. God hates it. 
It's one of the lowest things in God's estimation to use his holy church and temple this way. I hate robbery for burnt offering. Remarkably, what he says through Isaiah there isn't just that he hates robbery, but that this specific formulation of robbery that was going on is exactly what they were doing. They were robbing people through burnt offering, through the worship of God. Paul, you know, tells us as he writes to the Corinthians that covetousness is idolatry. It's an interesting way of putting it. But as I prayed earlier, the tenth commandment is a conclusive commandment that takes all the rest and investigates the heart. You shall not covet. And then it circles around to the first commandment again. Covetousness is not I'm a Christian who has some weaknesses that I want things sometimes. It's very serious and you have to watch for it. Jesus warns about it. Paul warns about it. Peter warns about it. Jude warns about it. It destroys souls. It's one of our foundational native sins. What we will be considering in a point in the sermon this evening. Um, how we fell. And Eve had covetousness. So it's not just... I want a bit of extra money and I desire these designer clothes and so on. That, that comes from it. But it's this desire in us to take, uh, to make money, to empower ourselves. Covetousness is idolatry. You shouldn't look at stealing or covetousness as, I'm a spiritual person but I took this practical thing from someone else. And the reason Paul calls that idolatry is that the taking is just the end result of what's going on. It's not the taking that's the first problem. The first problem is that a covetous heart is worshipping itself. <coughs> then we circle back to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You cannot have any covetousness and fulfill the first commandment because the truth about covetousness is you have enthroned yourself as an end. God is not the end then. The end in itself. The person is to be served and given glory. But something happens in you and you become that point. And then you want to take for yourself as God takes glory and possessions unto himself. He's made the whole earth. But you become that and you become a God unto yourself. And that's, that's why it manifests itself in um, I'm going to fill up my bank account because it's responsible to have safety and so on. Well, someone could be doing that because they worship themselves. I want to be safe, therefore I'm not giving it to anyone else. I want to be secure because I want to be a God unto myself. I don't want to be insecure. I want spending power so that if X, Y, or Z happens, I can do it. Someone may even do it thinking... Well, if I have all that in my bank account, if anything happens in the church and they need to buy new chairs or salters, I can flash my credit card and seem really spiritual and buy it all for them, and then I'll be praised. Oh, the human heart. We all have covetousness in us. We're idolaters. That's a worship of the self. I have. I want. I want to please myself. I want these things for my home and my children so that we will be happy. Because we are the end unto ourselves. We don't want to be uncomfortable for Christ. We don't want to give anything up for Christ. We don't want to go on the mission field for Christ. We want, as Joel Osteen says, 
our best life now. We want and we desire, therefore we are covetous. What a problem it is. And that's what's going on here. My father's house has become a house of merchandise because, as the prophets say, they have all been given unto covetousness with their millions and billions of dollars filtering through the temple treasury, all in the name of being the holy man of Israel. What about Christ? Did Christ go around looking for land like Judas did? Uh, was Christ a giver or a taker? Did, did Christ want to flash and enjoy expensive things all of the time? Was Christ building up his own comfortableness in this world as he was the servant of the Lord? What about Paul? Make no mistake, I'm sure Paul came from a wealthy family. I'm sure he grew up with things, well-educated in Tarsus, going to theological school in Jerusalem, spotted when he was a young teenager to be worthy of training under the best rabbis in the nation, a tent maker. His father uh, made tent uh, materials and, and curtains and, and cloth uh, that could be used many people think, um, for the Roman army <clears throat> to make material and weave material, a very good material that could be used by the Roman army, uh, so that when uh, the army was out in weather and so on, um, that they could do that. Uh, the, the reason people think that, by the way, is because there is an inexplicable possession in Paul's family of Roman citizenship. When he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, his father was a Pharisee, his grandfather was a Pharisee. They were Hebrews of Hebrews. They didn't even they wouldn't even speak, you know, speak Greek in the home and so on. Um, they were Hebrews of the Hebrews, very strict Jews. And how did they how were they given a Roman citizenship? It's very possible that it was given unto them because of the position they held um, with their business with the Roman army. But the point is for now, when you read Paul's letters, this isn't some, some brute who lived in, in the wilderness who doesn't know culture. Paul knows culture. Paul knew rich people. Paul knew how to be around rich people. Paul knew what nice things were. He knew what quality was. But Paul didn't want to amass it ever for himself. He was very careful when he went to churches not to be seen that way. And even not to be paid in some places he went. Paul was upon the sea and upon the hills and walking everywhere. Paul never made himself the CEO of a massive Christian corporation with all the money coming in. That's not what he did. He's almost embarrassed when the Philippians give him money. And he writes a whole epistle to address the awkwardness of the huge amount of money they just sent him while he's under house arrest in Rome and that probably paid his rent. And he said, I did not seek the gift, but the fruit that abounds to your account for giving it to me. I don't seek this. I don't seek it. I didn't ask for it. I didn't hint. I didn't suggest. Paul was like his master very much. Now, Jesus comes in here <clears throat> in that spirit, seeing all this. Of course, it displeases him. 
the covetousness. Now, let's apply that today. It's all very well talking about Pharisees and so on. A house of merchandise. We need to apply this very much today because not only do we live in an unprecedented widespread increase in the standard of living, globalization and a whole century of increased prosperity, this becomes an issue for us. I'm sure you who are older here, or especially the older ones, the elderly, who remember their parents <coughs> and their grandparents, most people didn't live like us. I know that's the case in Scotland, <coughs> even for elders and ministers I know, and their parents and grandparents and the houses they grew up in. Houses literally without a floor, with soil as a floor, uh, having to go and take the water from a well or from the street, or the restrooms in the backyard uh, during the winter. No refrigerators. Uh, they weren't even invented. We, most people in human history have not lived like us. We are these. We touch the faucet, and there it is, water. We open the refrigerator, there it is. We use an app. Food is delivered to our home. We, are, we can buy clothes that are affordable and actually look upper middle class and even, even higher than that um, because they're made all over the world because of globalization. I mean, in the past, people had a lot less clothes unless they were in the upper class. We're actually relatively wealthy. Um, we have a lot more. Life is different from us. There's things you eat regularly that our great-great-grandparents would never even had access to. People lived differently. And most of the people in Jesus' day lived that way, including Jesus. It was just the reality. The West has prospered and God has blessed it. And this is, you know what we're doing with it. Globalization has made our lives very easy. Now, I say all that because... That has all happened and been put together with the church. That always happens. The church in America, relatively speaking, is wealthy. Ministries, in many ways, are wealthy. Famous preachers of charismatic kind, of false prophet kind, even of reformed kind, have a lot more today than people did in the past or our reformed forefathers. And that lays on us this extra issue of responsibility that we can be caught out easily by Satan. Doing the very thing that Jesus points out here. We have to be very careful in organizations and denominations as ministries, as businesses that are evangelical and reformed. But not only that, just as individuals. The Western life can take hold of your family or your house even if you're single, it can take hold of you as an individual, even if you're not personally involved in church big business. Why do churches need to be careful about this? In, in what ways can it catch churches out? Well, um, churches having extra business 
that isn't just the preached word and so on, that most churches in the past, that's all they could do. Whereas today, because of the internet and because of globalization and international missions, even American churches, congregations or organizations, in their desire to be mission-focused, have spread, you think someone like John MacArthur, spreading the gospel throughout the world through his cassette tape ministry, faithfully for over 30 years. Um, And organizations like that, or even in our own denomination, arms of the denomination that do work like that, it requires money, and it brings in money, because if you're doing cassette tapes or CDs or online sermons, and then you have people's sermons being turned into books, um, and you're reprinting the Puritans and all of these things, that costs money, and it's sellable. I mean, they don't just give these things away. They don't print the new works of John Owen and just hand them out to everyone. Um, because it's really untenable to do that. It costs money to print those books. But you know what happens. The Word of God, or sermons about God, or words that John Owen wrote, get printed in books with a nice shiny dust cover and they cost hundreds of dollars in a set and they're in stores. The church has stores, loosely speaking. That's why we have to be careful because as I just explained it to you, it's defendable. There's a way in which it's legitimate, right? How many things do you know because you've read from one of these books? It's a blessing. and we're glad that it's happened, but it has another side. It has another side of the blade that Satan can use because in comes the money. And then that church or organization says, what do we do with all this money? Huh. That's a great responsibility. Easy, you can easily get caught out by something like this. You sell, selling the books for a bit, you know, too much. Um, then there's actual merchandise. It's ironic. Christ says, you've made my house a house of merchandise. Churches now have their own merchandise. You join the Young, Restless and Reformed, or even RPCNA or PCA, there'll be some merchandise with the denomination logo on it, and you, you buy a hoodie and it's $59.99. Where does that money go? What's that for? How much did it cost to make? You see how this could become a problem for us. Because of business things going on in the church, and the internet, the truth is ministries and ministers and elders can become a lot richer than they were in the past unless they were from the upper class anyway and inherited it from their family. All someone needs to do is get exposed on the internet, um, have their preaching very popular, have lots of people watching them, and then start to release books. Now, where does that money go? Where, does, where do the royalties go? How much were they paid to write these books? You can see how it could become a problem. Ministers, authors who write books, uh, what, is the, what is the writing fee that's given to them by an organization or denomination? And then if the book sells one million copies, who gets the money? Who gets the money? Where does it go? You know the prosperity preachers release a lot of books. Uh, there are reformed men that release a lot of books. There was the, the emergent church and the young restless and reformed movement. People like Mark Driscoll release a lot of books. Now where's that money go? It would be interesting to see where all those monies go. Now, 
if a minister who's called to be a minister of the word is taking his sermons that he's already written and he's already preached them and then those words are put into a book and that book costs the people of God $20 a piece and that minister is getting a percentage of selling that every time it's sold and it's going into his bank account and that minister ends up with $700,000 in his bank. Is that okay? I'm just asking the question right now. I'm not going to speak as a prophet onto that uh, specific issue. But I would ask this question. How is that not selling your preaching? How is that not just selling the word? Most of the time you might not have even done extra work to have it put in the form that you expect God's people to pay you for it. We have to be very careful with these things. Not just books, but conferences and movements. Reformed conferences and, and movements. You go to these conferences, uh, they charge a lot of money. Um, they have stores uh, there set up, merchandise. You can buy a reformed pen or a reformed watch or a reformed mug. And we are buying merchandise. Now, there's legitimate things that can go on, and there's legitimate business. But if you're in a church sanctuary, and there's literally a shop in the sanctuary at the back saying, buy Pastor Prakash's book, there are issues with that. You go to a conference, and you're meant to be there to worship God, hear his word, be confronted by God with his word and his grace, and grow in Christ, and hopefully hear some good preachers in which you'll rise and ascend as a Christian to a, a level you weren't at before. But when you go there, and before you even read the scriptures, there's 10 minutes of explanation of everything that's on sale, and you're buying these things, um, how is that not distracting from the worship of God or intruding some way upon the worship of God? See, there's a temple, there's a church, and the church is gathered, and it sounds legitimate, and I'm not legislating for it myself, uh, because I don't know how they figure out all this money, to be honest. But you can, you can justify it by saying, let's just put it right at the door of the temple. Let's, let's get near the line. The sanctuary is in there. God's sacrifices are being offered in there. But it's okay if we do all this immediately around it, and people see it on the way in, and so on. That's exactly what these people were doing. Making money off God's people. Why can't we publish a bunch of books that it comes out of all the rich people in the church's bank account or the ministers that have made a lot of money and release those books and, and sell them to the poor people in the Reformed Church for $2 each? Why can't we do that? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, how, how, how much is someone be paid and so on to, to write these things and... and and then they're sold. Uh, I'm very uncomfortable with that. And then there's the conferences itself. You, you get big names. And this is not me envying the big names at all. Uh, if I was asked to do it, I would hopefully follow the principles that I'm espousing to you. But uh, ministers are asked to do big reform conferences. Uh, they give the same lecture or sermon. They give it about eight to 10, 15 other conferences. It's always the same message at these conferences. And um, 
but it's another lecture on Martin Luther. It, you know, it's a it's another lecture on the ecclesiology of John Calvin or whatever. And how much are they paying these men to come and speak at these things? And then they release another book on it. There's a lot of books on the same stuff that money is made. And what do we pay men to go and speak at a conference? You may say, well, the, the worker is worthy of his wages. Yes. Um, but it's more complicated than that. Pay your minister for laboring in the word every week. But if you're given the honor of speaking to 8,000 people at a conference, I personally would count that honor as, if you want to call it a payment, that would be it. And then they would let you, you know, they would pay for your travel. But to go there and be getting a check, uh, to give the same talks and the same lectures over and over again, and uh, to be paid you know, high amounts, to speak at reform conferences, and then you arrive with caseloads of your own book to sell at that conference, I'm very uncomfortable with that. Would Paul have sold the letter to the Corinthians for $10 a piece? Maybe the paper, the cost of the paper it was printed on, but would Paul have taken a commission to preach? Paul, come and preach in our church in Corinth. We'll give you 500 denarii. Do you think Paul would say yes? There is a way to bless ministers. But actually selling books on justification or something like that, it comes very close to my estimation in some ways that there's a danger of selling God's word and making it merchandise. We need to be very careful. There's a lot of poor people out there. Not everyone has money to go to family conferences and reform conferences and go there and be disappointed because it's the same talk again, um, but it's cost them $250 each or something. Let's be careful that in the name of fellowship and growing in grace, that we are not just upper middle class businesses where we go on these like vacations and there's pressure on the people that don't have money. I'm going to go to the big reform conference in Dallas and it costs them an arm and a leg. And then... You say, I've got this new set of books. And the poor person who's struggling in his bank account can't, can't even benefit from these things because he'd have to not eat for a month to buy some of these things. I'm giving you the question and the principle. We need to be very careful. You think Jesus doesn't watch all of this? He weighs Belshazzar in the balance. Many, many pickle you parson. Every cent is counted. The widow's might is counted by Jesus. He watches in the courtyard. He knows where it's all going. How many men have fallen, my brothers and sisters, <coughs> through this? How many have fallen through covetousness and business and dodgy deals and plagiarism? Let's be careful. There was a time in the evangelical church where really only someone like Martin Lloyd-Jones would release a book and anyone would be interested it seems now everyone's an author and promoting themselves on the internet. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. So there's covetousness. There's also irreverence, and I touched upon this last week. It's not just that they're fleecing God's people. It's that they're audacious enough to fleece them and steal in the very sanctuary of God and also that they've set up a marketplace and a bank 
with all this activity and noise and transactions from those activities in the very temple mount of God. And I said to you last time that that mountain is holy. Don't forget that. Israel trembled before Sinai because God actually showed his fire of holiness. But you read this text and you say, there's the priests in the temple doing something they shouldn't be doing and Jesus walks up to it and you don't think of it as Sinai, but it is Sinai, if you know what I mean by that. It's no different than Sinai. Just because God isn't showing the blazing holiness of his being. Uh, this is a holy place, just like Sinai. And look what they're doing in it. Jesus walks up to it, and it's not obvious. It's not emanating from him. The fire of God isn't revealed through Jesus' humiliation. It's revealed through his actions and his words. But it's holy. God told Moses, take the sandals off your feet, because when I burn in a bush, that location is now holy. When I descend upon a mountain, that place is holy. When David purchased the top of this hill, and it was the place for my tabernacle and temple, it became holy. When I descended into Solomon's temple, this place became holy. It is my court and my sanctuary. Jesus calls it in verse 16, my father's house. My father's house. His holy father. His own holiness. The holiness of the Holy Spirit that we have all too well forgotten. As we've globalized and increased in our prosperity and are less dependent on God, and our life is full of distractions and gizmos and interesting things with an apple icon on it, we have become less aware of the holiness of God. Our forefathers had nothing, but they knew what the holiness of God was. Then Satan blinds us with all of this distraction and color and spending power and possessions and the time it takes to buy them and watch over them and maintain them. And we have forgot we are so inundated with the common, we don't know what holiness is. I don't think most of the Reformed Church knows what the holiness of God is. Jesus comes up and he knows with consistency what the holiness of God was on these mountains and his presence with his people, especially in his holy temple. God sanctified that place. It was for pure worship. Only priests could enter. It was sacred, something that's completely forgotten by the Reformed Church today, that worship is sacred. It is separate. It is other. It is set apart. It is cordoned off. It is a place of sanctity and awe. And today, that's our church. That's our denomination. That's our congregation. That's the Reformed churches and anyone else who claims the name of Jesus. In all the little Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches, in the big stadiums where the prosperity ministers preach, they all say, may Jesus bless you. And they invoke his name and they claim that it's Jesus' sanctuary. 
but no one knows who the real Christ is, that he is holy. His worship is holy. His worship elements are holy. His commands to approach him carefully and considerately and lowly, these are all holy. They've set up the common. They justified it. It's the court of the Gentiles. It's not the inner sanctuary. It's not the court of the woman or Israel. It's a more general place and we're allowed to do this here. That's what we do. We find the line and we say it will be okay if we bring this in here, bring this in there, change this, add this, take this away, distract people with this, make church a bit more fun, and we forget that we're dealing with a consuming fire. That our church is the temple of God. I said in our call to worship, in our prayer, that when you gather here, friends, um, and the minister invokes the presence of God and calls upon his name and says, let us worship him. We set foot on the bottom of Mount Zion. Our feet step upon holy ground where the substance of God's spirit in his eternal light and holiness and otherness and sacredness and transcendence, completely different being than us, who burns up sin and who does not allow the common in his presence. He is holy. That means that he is to be reverenced. I'm saying to you there's a problem of irreverence here that made Jesus angry. It is irreverent. He has zeal for that house, that temple, because there's covetousness in it, but because there's irreverence in it. This should never have been happening in his holy temple. It's irreverent. They forgot to separate the common from the holy. God says through Ezekiel that the priests, my priests, he says, have forgotten how to distinguish between the holy and the unholy. And they will not tell my people. They don't distinguish between the holy and the common. He says through Jeremiah, when Jeremiah called upon him uh, in his despondency, he said to Jeremiah that he would use him if Jeremiah learned to separate the precious from the vile. There are different categories in this life, friend. There are common things and there are holy things. There are base and material and everyday things. And then there is dealing with God in prayer and worship and praise. These things are holy. You ascend onto Mount Zion, onto a spiritual mountain, made of spirit and made of his triumphant church. And it is a holy mountain that Hebrews tells us he dwells upon in a consuming fire. Holy angels behold him on the mountain that we joined to worship this morning. They are worshipping him right now. In utter awe of his holiness and majesty and his dreadful glory and awe-inspiring sight. He is other and high and holy and glorious and weighty and pure and righteous and we are finite and sinful 
And we should be in awe any time we come near him. This has been lost. And I'm not speculating, it's my own experience and my own progress through denominations and so on and the worship that I observe and that I can compare to the way it was 30 years ago. The degeneration uh, even in reformed churches. I'm not saying it for us to, to point the finger and feel good ourselves. I'm just giving you, it's an analysis, it's happening, it should concern us. Places where the word was read in, in, in reverence and preaching was done in solemnity and power and spirit-filled and calling the lost to repentance and the lost actually came and where communion was done reverently and properly with preparation and weight and seriousness where baptism was a glorious thing and where the sanctuary on the Lord's Day morning was a place you went to step into another atmosphere aware of your sin and to do business with God and what's it now? A comedy show. A comedy show for children, quite literally. Men, who, men who've gone to seminary and who have MDivs, calling on all the children to come to the front and saying to them, let's have some fun and let's make everyone laugh. Do you know why a minister does that? Do you know why the ministers are obsessed with children and worship? It's because the ministers are children. I hope my own children have more of a conception of the reverence and holy fear of God than these ministers who joke around and play music videos and, and, and bring the common and board games into worship and decks of cards and read silly stories to children so that all the grandparents can laugh in the presence of God. We, we're not here to do that. We're here because we have a problem. Sin. And I want God to tell me what's really wrong. So I can be real and put it right. And be secure for heaven. And know Christ. These people are robbing their congregations. With the common and the stupid. And the light and the levity. When God's glory is heavy. And it fills the room and it's a whirlwind in your face. God's glory is heavy. It's kabod. It's weighty. His grace is weighty. His love is full and rich and weighty. It's not light and meaningless and stupid. He is weighty. And if people don't feel weighty in his presence, they don't know who he is. Oh, we'll sell merchandise in God's temple and pull cows in and sheep and sell doves and make money and rob people. Christ speaks for his Father. The worship of God is pure. And you come to it in the lowness of your sin with parts of you unclean, with a soul that's wrenched and desiring to worship him properly and to meet his spirit, to have the Holy Spirit poured out. And like they did in Acts of the Apostles, that when he comes, the room is shaken with the weight of his glory 
on the fiery tongues of the Holy Spirit, we would see. But you know what I mean. You know what's true of Acts chapter 1 and 2? God was actually there. It wasn't foolish pastors who have so lost the knowledge of God that they think he's there when he's not there. It's just candy floss, bubble gum. It's not the things of God. Why is Christ zealous here about this irreverence? For his father on his father's territory. Why? Because God says of his worship and sanctuary in the second commandment, I, the Lord, am a jealous God. That's why these things are going on in our churches and there's degeneration. That's been totally lost. Even sometimes by us. Mercy, grace, love. Jesus will accept you. We don't know the attributes of our God. He is holy and he is zealous because I, Jehovah, I am, but I am a consuming fire in my eternal spirit. I'm a jealous God, he says to the people from Mount Sinai in the second commandment. Be aware of this, he says, lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. That's the second commandment. Now we forget about the other churches. Let's take the Reformed Church. Uh, regulative principle. We're strong on the regulative principle. Hymns, psalms. Ha ha, funny debate. You sing psalms, we sing hymns. Oh, how do you do the Lord's Supper? You're going to use grape juice or wine. Ha ha. Let's all talk in the sanctuary. Let's all distract each other. Let's not prepare to come in. Let's think nothing on the way out. Let's just look around as we sing the psalms and just see who's come this week or what they're wearing and so on. All these things in the worship of God. In the Reformed Church, we say we're big on the regulative principle. We're not big on the regulative principle. Do you know why? Because in the second commandment that gives the regulative principle, it doesn't just say there's a correct way to worship God. Debate it and make sure you get it right. It tells you the reason. It's because God is jealous. That's not in the church today. He's not jealous. He's, he's long-suffering. He's merciful and gracious. He's holy. Uh, he will deliver you know, the iniquity of the fathers to the children, and that's uncomfortable, and it will happen somehow. But people don't come to the church saying, the God I'm about to worship is very jealous. He's intense. He's not intense. Jesus is meek. And whoever is weary and heavy laden, come unto me, and I will give you rest. Yes, but the one who's going to give you rest burns with zeal and he is jealous. You know that Hebrew word in the command, I, the Lord, am a jealous God? That's the word that John says here when he quotes Psalm 69. Zeal for your house has consumed me. It, that's the word. The same Hebrew word, kana, jealousy. Jealousy for your house has consumed me. Can our ministers say that? Can our elders and deacons say that? Can the population of our denomination say that honestly before God? That they wake up on the Lord's Day morning and they say, I am jealous 
for your worship and the things that go on in it. The laughing and the distractions and the comedy and the lightheartedness and the, sh- the shallow preaching or the really undeveloped immature prayers or the sacraments and how quickly they're done. We shall now have the Lord's Supper. Take, eat, take, drink. Let us pray. And now your benediction. He is jealous. Is your Christ jealous? I'm saying this as a preacher, not because I'm very righteous myself. I'm asking you as a preacher. I have to ask you as I ask myself. Is your Christ jealous? Because if he's not, he is not Jesus Christ. Isn't that scary? The Reformed Church better be very careful if it doesn't have a jealous Christ. Oh man. What are you going to do? Pull Christ's heart out? And make him an an affirmer of everything we are? Pull his heart out? Christ is jealous for his bride. He is not indifferent and he is not moderate. Irreverence. Covetousness and irreverence. So let me close with this. Because of that covetousness and because of that irreverence, Christ clears out the temple. And he's driving them out for those reasons. For the sake of his father, but for the sake of the Gentile worshippers. And I don't know if you've thought about that. Those eunuchs, those widows, those foreigners, they spent weeks and months, some of them traveling to Jerusalem. Saving up the money, worried about what the prices were going to be. Should I bring my own sacrifice and my own dove? Should I buy one on the way where they're cheaper? Would it be safer just to buy it in Jerusalem? They get to Jerusalem. They spend the whole first day going around and having to buy things in shops and so on. Then they go up to the temple to pray. Jesus said, my father's house is a house of prayer for all nations. This is for prayer and worship. The Gentiles went into that court to pray. The Ethiopian eunuch, who's the chancellor of the Ethiopian kingdom, the head of the treasury of Ethiopia, with his scroll, which would have cost him a lot of money. His scroll is Isaiah 53. He goes up to worship. A eunuch. Even a Jewish eunuch couldn't walk into the sanctuary. If you'd had that procedure done to you and you were a eunuch, that was seen as a deformity, and there are certain reasons God did not allow deformity in his temple, because it's a picture of heaven. So if you had that de- deformity in your arm and so on, there were certain things that God would not allow you into the inner sanctuary because deformity was not appropriate in the inner holy sanctuary of God. He still wants them to worship him, but there's a reason for that. Lepers and anyone who's unclean um, from their monthly uncleanness and so on, there were barriers because God was teaching something. You can't come to me with these deformities and uncleanness and just be in heaven. Christ has to deal with all that first. Well, they're all going up. The foreigner who says, I'm a dry tree, I have no house, I have no offspring. And how can I know the God of heaven? As he sits there in Greece or in Libya, and he's looking up at the stars and the moon and the sunrise and 
the bustling business all around him and he gets, he's in Alexandria and he gets a hold of the Jewish scriptures and he reads about God and he says, I will joy when I go up to the house of the Lord. I'm going to go and seek this God of Israel. And he arrives and the Jews are running a mall in his prayer area where he's meant to listen to rabbis preach God's word. And he's sitting there as we would this morning. I mean, imagine that there were cattle all around this building and stores and people exchanging money and negotiating and the smell and the sight of it all. Just constant interruptions. To pray and to worship, you need to concentrate intensely to really benefit from it. I know it can be tiring sometimes, but these are the things of God and we need to be able to concentrate on them. They are just so uncaring and inconsiderate and unloving in doing this in this place. And Christ hates it. He says that it should have been a house of prayer, but you're doing business and merchandising here. Do we care about the eunuch and the foreigner, the African, the Korean, the Thai, the Brazilian, the Mexican? Do we care when they come? Um, do we care about each other? We can distract each other with our, our business, the things we want to do, the things we need to get ready before and after worship or in worship. Um, someone see, never be a distractor in that way. There are distractions that have to happen. That's not what it's about. Uh, silent sanctuaries does not equal holiness automatically. So, sometimes it means there's a graveyard. Now, I'm not saying make a lot of noise. If there's an amen now and again, so be it, and things like that. And uh, there are children, uh, and there are children, you know, with certain conditions and so on. Um, we're not speaking about that. We're speaking about when churches ramble on with announcements about all that you can buy and all the things that have been on that week and the baseball match that's happening, fellowship between the men on Thursday night, and they ramble on about the common and then say, let us worship God. How can you warm people's hearts up to, that are about to step into a consuming fire and you're saying all that to them? Or do you say it in the sermon? Or you say in the sermon, I forgot one of my announcements, here it is. Or you play music videos in the sermon. Or you use things in worship and sermon that are just too common. There is such a thing as inappropriate illustrations, things like that. You know what I'm speaking about. I'm not self-righteous about these things. I've made these mistakes. I hope I've learned from the right man. But I see it everywhere. How many times have you gone into worship? In a congregation or even just among ministers or elders. And within 10 minutes you're utterly disappointed. Not because you went there self-righteously. But because things are said and attitudes are shown and a temperature is set. That is not right. It's just not right. Now are we going to do that for people who visit our church and want to join our church or, or we should be careful about that what about the person seeking the Lord uh, there's a foreigner seeking the Lord they're pagan they're, you know they're, they're Kenyan or from Zimbabwe or they're from India or Pakistan we be very careful what you, what you do around them and the tone that we set for them because to place a stumbling block in front of someone entering worship or the kingdom, Jesus clearly takes it extremely seriously. Um, if there's someone seeking the Lord, 
keep that situation as holy. Be careful, be restrained, be wise. Watch indicators. If they want to speak, speak to them. If they don't want to speak, respect that. All of us now, as I close, uh, be careful that when you come in here and when you're leaving, that you're sensitive to what's going on in other people's souls. Someone in here may have just been transcended up the mountain for the first time or for a time they've been desperate to experience again. They might have actually seen the face of God by the Spirit. They, they, they might be doing business with God in their hearts. A, a sin might have been pressed on that the preacher isn't even aware of. A sense of God's holiness and glory. And the kabod and glory of God is very tangible to them and it might have even filled their heart. And that after we finish here, they may just bow their head and want to bask in that for 20 minutes. And they don't, they don't want to be prodded or asked how work is going or something like that. Let's just be sensitive to spiritual matters. We're here doing business with God and if we believe what we confess, we expect him to be here and to do these things. And the Gentile that comes in may fall down on his face and say, God is among you. There's not more to say than that. I mean, if, we have, if that's achieved, I, I, I want to be doing that. God is among you. God. God. That's what we want people to find. Well, they say, what sign do you perform to justify all that you're saying? Verse 18. How do you justify what you're doing here, Christ? Who are you? What authority do you have? Which, what rabbi are you? They don't drive them out. And there's a good reason for it. They know that most of the people hate them and don't like that this is happening in the temple. They don't have the crowd's support. And they're caught off guard by Christ. He just comes in and does it. And when someone does that in the power and authority of God, and you're not in your right place, and you're not walking with the Lord, and someone does that, you don't have a lot to say about it. You're kind of startled, and kind of they let it happen. But then, to save face, they follow up and say, well... Who gave you the right to do this? Um, and they glory in their temple. But Jesus says to them, and I'm closing with this, that he says, this is the sign. Not only my anger, I am the sign, you can see it, but destroy this temple, the sign. Destroy me. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus is definitely telling them and alluding to that he knows that this actual stone temple is going to be destroyed soon. They can't imagine it. 46 years, it's huge. Herod has built this, it can't fall. Jesus says, it will fall because of your rejection of me. This temple will fall. It will be raised to the ground and not one stone left on another. It will be desolate. I will build my church. But he says to them that that will all happen if this temple is destroyed. This temple and John says, we knew afterwards he was speaking about his body. That means, friend, that that temple is gone. And that as John chapter 4 says, which is a conclusion of this chapter, which is why it's there. When he meets the woman of Samaria, he tells her this. He doesn't tell them it. He tells her. And he says, you wouldn't worship on this mountain or that mountain, but in spirit and in truth. That means the temple and the location is gone. And that Jesus becomes the foundation in his body of a spiritual temple. He's the cornerstone and foundation 
And then this temple is actually people, it's souls. And there's a, there's a stone of it in you. Your soul is one of the stones of you're in Christ. It's a spiritual stone cut and shaped by him. And he places it next to another one and on top of another one. And he builds his temple out of his people and he dwells there. Let us not ever let that cut us out when we come in here. That we have our spiritual antenna on and that we know that we constitute a temple that is even more holy than that original temple. And that in that place, there can be no covetousness, there can be no reverence or innovations that he does not approve. And that we should always be of a broken and contrite heart when we worship him. He is the fulfillment of this temple. That's the second sign, if you want to call it a sign. He's the giver of wine of God. And he is the spiritual temple of God. May God bless our thoughts on his word this morning. To his name be all the praise and the glory. Please stand and we'll call upon him in prayer.